God's creation. Ever since the fall, when Adam and his wife Eve, they sinned against God, there's been insurrection against the creator God. In a world whose prince is the devil, the God of this world is the devil. Everyone is guilty of taking part in this rebellion against God. It's a rebellion that is led by the world's leaders. I'm sure I said it this morning. It's uh, Psalm 2. There are people in here that know that this psalm, I say it a lot because it's so relevant for today. Psalm 2. And I'm going to just repeat the first verses of it again. I've, I've read it so many times. You know, it's long, long ago reached a point where I needed to look in the Bible. But I, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed or his Christ, saying, let us break their bands asunder, cast away their cords from us. This is the world's leaders leading the world against, in rebellion against God so relevant for today this insurrection against almighty God this evening as we look at God's account of how he without our help created the heaven and the earth we'll be considering creation facts I've underlined that facts that are largely rejected despite them being recorded and preserved for us in the inerrant word of God. It's so clear. I'm I'm sure just from reading um, Genesis chapter 1 to you there, even without the sermon, it's so clear that God created. In the beginning, God created. How else does one interpret that? It couldn't be easier, could it, to understand that God created the heaven and the earth. There's nothing to explain. All you have to do really is just say it as it is from Genesis chapter 1. But still, there are those who say in their hearts, there is no God. And the Bible calls them fools. The truth is being suppressed and dismissed by our leaders and by academic institutions, from schools, primary schools, high schools, colleges, universities. They all teach evolutionary lies, and they teach them as a fact. Consequently, the minds of a great number of young people are being indoctrinated, and they are being brainwashed with those lies, those evolutionary lies, so much so that it's become so antiquated to think that God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter 1 tells us that God created the heaven and the earth in six days. On day one, God made earth, he made light, and he made water. On day two, God made the firmament. What is the firmament? Well, it's called heaven in verse 8. The firmament refers to the sky in verse 20 and to outer space in verses 15 and six, uh, 14 and 15. The water that God made on day one was separated by the firmament on day two. 
On day three, there was more separation. This time, a separation of the water under the firmament so that dry land appeared. We see that in verses 9 and 10. God commanded the dry land or the earth to bring forth trees, green grass, flowers and many other kinds of plants after his kind. That's in verses 11 and 12. On day four, God made the sun, he made the moon and I love the way we read in there and he made the stars also. Just throw that one in. He made the stars also. It's nothing for God, is it? To make all those stars. Every time I think of the stars, he made the stars also. Here we go. You know, the old story's coming out again. I try not, try not to give you too many of them, but sometimes I can't help myself. Uh, God's firework display in the middle of nowhere in Rajasthan in India. Uh, when we were on a camel trek, Pauline and I, a number of years ago, we settled down for the night. The, the desert floor was our bed and we looked up into the sky. I hadn't bothered to look up into the sky until I laid down for the night. I looked up in the sky and I'd never seen anything like it in my life. Amazing, just stars everywhere. Truly amazing. What a sight to behold. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. And again, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. When you, when I looked up into the sky and saw that God's firework display there, just nothing to compare with it. Beautiful, beautiful God's handiwork. On day five, God made the sea creatures. He made the birds of the air after his kind. That's in verses 20 and 21. On day six, God made the animals that live on the land after his kind. Verses 24 and 25. And last of all, still on day six, God made man. Unlike all the other creatures, God made man in his image. Verse 26, that is, in chapter 1. First of all, we can consider that God made everything in six literal days. The Hebrew word that has been translated day in chapter 1 is yom. And that is precisely the same word that can be found in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through to 11, where it is written... Remember the Sabbath day, Sabbath Yom, to keep it holy. For in six days, same again, Yom, the Lord made heaven and earth. This is the commandment, the fourth commandment, speaking about creation. The Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day, Yom. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So that's a reference to the fourth commandment. That is the fourth commandment which places a duty upon us to keep one day in seven holy and there is that reference to creation in the fourth commandment when God made everything in six days and he rested from his handiwork, his creative handiwork on the seventh day. 
That is the pattern that we are to follow. Six days of work followed by a day of la- uh, a day of rest, consecrated by God to be a time in which we f- fix our thoughts upon Him. And what a what is there anything better that we could do? Of course not. One day in seven that God has set apart where we think about Him, His creative handiwork. And if you're a Christian, you can praise him and worship him and, and thank him and adore him for for delivering you from slavery to sin. But again, I want to emphasise, when God created, he did so in six literal days and he rested on the seventh. And that is the pattern that he has set for us. Six days where we work, if we're working, but importantly, there's one day in seven that we rest from our labours and we focus our minds on God. Although God could have created everything, including time, of course, in one indivisible moment in time, can you see that the Bible gives us absolutely no reason at all to assume that those six days of creation were anything other than six literal days. There's nothing in there. You know, I even get Christians saying to me, well, we don't have to take it literally. Yes, we do, because the Bible takes it literally. Six days. None of this six days where a day could, well, actually, it could mean a million years or something. No, forget it. Six days. Six literal days. Secondly, everything was created after its kind. You got that, didn't you? When I was reading chapter 1, it came up time and time again. Whatever God created, he, he made it after its kind or after his kind. And when I was summarising the six days of creation, at the beginning of this sermon, I said that the vegetation, when was that made? On the third day was made after its kind. What is after its kind? What does it mean for the vegetation, the herbs and the trees and all the rest of it to be made after its kind? It means to be made according to its species. Simple as that. Similarly, it can be seen that the sea creatures and the birds of the air and the land animals were made after his kind. It's all there. In chapter 1, they were all made according to their species. Since the whole of creation took six literal days, as we've seen, what that means is that contrary to the lie that is taught and is presented as fact, that all life form evolved over a period of millions of years or billions of years, depends how many zeros you want to stick on the number, I guess, The truth as we see it in the word of God is that God made ants and he made elephants and everything else and he did so in six literal days. Therefore they simply had no time to evolve. The National Geographic and all of those school textbooks and Darwin and everyone else who holds to evolution they've got it wrong when they assert that all life on earth evolved from, from I guess, a, a single-celled organism that lived roughly three and a half billion 
years ago, or give or take a few billion years, I guess. Years ago, before I became a Christian, a stranger stopped me in Piccadilly in central London and began to talk to me about creation. This is long before I became a Christian. Long before. I I would guess, uh, I don't know, maybe 15 years before I became a Christian. We sat down in St James's churchyard in Piccadilly as she explained that giraffes have a special valve in their long necks to stop the rush of blood to their brains when they stoop down to drink water. From what I remember, she pointed out that that had to be something that giraffes always had. Now, why would that be? Why would giraffes always have needed to have a valve in their necks to to, to control the flow of water when they stoop down to drink water? That would have stopped the... the, the if they didn't have that valve, the blood would have rushed down their necks, the pressure into their brain would have been so much, it would have killed them. And if it would have killed them, then how would they have produced any offspring? The only way around this is that they had the valve all along. They didn't, you know, they, they didn't keep dying until they um, evolved valves in their necks. They had valves in their necks. God made them with valves in their necks, basically. I'm not making a very good, um, giving a good explanation, so I'm going to appeal to Ken Ham from Answers in Genesis. He said much the same thing, but he said it a bit better than me. This is how Ken Ham put it. How many giraffes blew their brains to pieces when bending down? How many passed out as they lifted their heads, becoming food for the lions, until the special features somehow evolved? It's obvious that the very first giraffes had to have these special features right from the beginning. If not, they wouldn't have survived to pass them on to their offspring. So, there you have it, giraffes. They always had the valve in the neck. They didn't evolve, evolve them. And I would go, anyone who's seen giraffes, I, they're beautiful creatures, aren't they? I would say that they've always had those lovely big eyes as well and uh, all the other beautiful things that God has given them. And because God makes things to, to, to exalt him. And when you see these giraffes and when you see God's creation, you see that it was, that it is very good. God doesn't do things by half. He knew what he was doing. And again, he made the giraffes, he made everything. In fact, he made us, man, without man's help. But that thing about the giraffes, it's always stuck in my mind for for much of my life now. And only a few days ago, literally last week, when I was out with my dog, um, Archie the dog on Peel Headlands, I was speaking with another dog walker, as I often do, and I knew I knew she was an atheist. She's declared herself to be an atheist in the past. So anyway, I took the opportunity to speak to her about creation. I was already thinking about the sermon, and I gave her the story of the giraffe. She reminded me that she's an atheist, but my prayer is that... God would speak to that 
speak to her as he spoke to me. And uh, that she would see the folly of making that statement that there, there is no God. And that she, that she would no longer hold to the evolutionary lie. It just doesn't make sense, does it? And ultimately, that she would come to know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Do not fall for the evolutionary lie that is propounded, that is promoted by academics, by scientists, and even by prominent theologians who profess to be Christians. Famous Christian teachers, so-called Christian teachers, who are, in fact, evolutionists. evolutionists. They call themselves theistic evolutionists. It's a lot of nonsense. The fact is that right from the beginning God created every species after its kind and everything that God made was very good. As the hymn writer rightly said, all things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. Thirdly, man was made in the image of God. Look at verses 26 and 27. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. On the sixth day, the final day of creation, God made man. And to think that less than a week earlier, or less than a week before making man, the earth was without form, it was void, according to verse 2. What we read in these verses of scripture is so different so very different from the evolutionary view that teaches that man evolved over a period of billions of years. I know for a fact, listen very carefully, I know for a fact that Jesus is a creationist. Did you know that yourselves? Jesus is a creationist. He really is, I can prove it. He most certainly does not believe that human beings evolved over a period of billions of years How do I know that? Well, in Mark chapter 10 and verse 6, referring to people, Jesus said, but from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. Do you know, it's almost as if Jesus has read Genesis chapter 1 and believed it. Jesus should know what he's talking about, really, shouldn't he? After all, he was there when God created the heaven and the earth. And the reason that Jesus was there is because he is the eternal son of God. And by him, by Jesus, were all things created that are in heaven and in the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers or all things were created by him, by the son of God and for him. 
Yes, Jesus most certainly is a creationist. The Son of God laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of his hands. And then there's the Apostle Paul. He was another creationist. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, Paul made reference to when God commanded the light to shine out of darkness. That's a reference to the first day of creation. When God commanded the light to shine out of darkness. Paul went on to say, God has made the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus to shine in your hearts. When it comes to the creation of human beings, we see in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27 that God made man in his image and that sets us apart from and above the rest of creation. As to what it means to be made in the image of God, well, we can refer to various other scriptures such as Colossians chapter 3 verses 8 through to 10 in which the Apostle Paul said, But now ye also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. In other words, there's no place for any of that if you are a Christian, if you're a new creature in Christ. Lie not one to another. No lying. Christians have no business telling lies. Seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, with his sinful deeds, and have put on the new man. Do you know, it reminds me of another scripture. If any man be in Christ Jesus, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So you put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. This is to do with knowledge. Being renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. And then there's Ephesians chapter 4 verse 22 through to 24 in which Paul said that he put off concerning the former conversation the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. Again, put off all these things. There's no room for it, no place for it as a Christian. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that ye put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. These two references are brought to you. Colossians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 4 speak about knowledge, righteousness, holiness as we put on that image of God. Those verses refer to the sinful and unregenerate nature that we're all born with as children of the first man, Adam, and of the ignorance that is in us because of the blindness of our hearts. That's how we all come into this world. Ignorant because of the blind... Ignorant, that's that's quite a derogatory term normally. To, to be ignorant it means simply not to have knowledge. And we have the, we don't have knowledge because of the darkness and the blindness of our hearts. And that's how we enter this world. However, if by the grace of God you are saved from your sins through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
then you do have knowledge. You have knowledge of God, you know him as your father, and you know Jesus, his son, as your saviour and your Lord. Everybody has a certain knowledge of God, don't they? No one can say they don't know anything about God. God has made himself known to all of us through his creation. But as I said earlier on, the people will insist on um, suppressing that truth, holding down that truth, rejecting that truth, although God has made it so clear. We just have to look at one another and we can see that there is a creator God. It's so obvious. It ought to be. Also, God has made himself known through his law, that he is the works of God's law that he has put in your hearts so that your conscience, it either accuses you or justifies you, defends you when you do something wrong, when you break God's laws then your conscience, unless it's been seared, it weighs heavy on you, doesn't it? Even that, that testifies that there is a God to whom we must all give an account. But, if you are a new creature in Christ, you put off the the old man, you put on Christ, then you have a special knowledge of God, a God-given knowledge, and you know God as your father. You address him as father in prayer and it comes naturally to you because he is your father, quite literally. Whether or not you've got a father in this world, it matters not. But having God as your father, well that's something else, isn't it? And knowing Jesus as your saviour and your Lord, it's wonderful. So, so much for the, so far from being ignorant and lacking knowledge, God has made the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shine in your heart, dear Christian. As for righteousness, well, you know something about righteousness, don't you, as a Christian? Not your own filthy rags of righteousness, forget all that stuff. You know a righteousness that comes from another from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is your righteousness. You're clothed in him and your acceptance before God is in him. You stand before God adorned with the righteousness of Jesus. You no longer seek to justify yourself before the throne of God. Instead, you plead nothing other than the sinless life of the Lord Jesus Christ. You plead his shed blood and you plead his death on the cross in your place for your sins. Then there's the holiness. We've got the knowledge of God, that we've got the righteousness of God and we've got this holiness that is spoken of in Ephesians. In Christ, you now stand before God holy and without blame in love in an everlasting love, holy from the time you first believed in Jesus. He has made you holy with his own precious blood. He has sanctified you, purified you, and made you fit to stand before God. 
throughout your Christian life, you continue to grow in the knowledge of the God of your salvation as you prayerfully read and study the scriptures. You don't mark time, do you? I, I would, I would hope, to be quite honest, that uh, if you, whatever you know now about God as a Christian, it's a lot more than you knew when you first became a Christian. You knew enough when you became a Christian to know that you were a sinner who needed a saviour. You knew enough to know that God is a holy, sin-hating God. But you've moved on. Not taking any way, anything away from what you already knew, you add to it and you grow in knowledge of the God of your salvation. And you never stop growing in knowledge because you, you, you are someone who reads and studies and meditates upon the word of God. Just like the psalmist in Psalm 1 who med- who reads the word of God in, in his law, he delights, he meditates upon that law day and night. And with thanksgiving in your heart for God's love and mercy towards you, it is your earnest prayer that he would work in you a greater practical righteousness as you draw on his enabling grace to mortify the deeds of the flesh and to grow in holiness there's nothing wrong with that as a christian i do you want to be holier i'm not talking about walking around with a halo above your head and walking around in a flowing white gown but as living a life that is separated from this world and and consecrated to god Basically, to be more like Jesus. That's something we all want, isn't it, as Christians? Isn't that your prayer? Earnest prayer. As that sanctifying process continues day by day, the Holy Spirit is moulding and shaping and conforming you more and more and more to the image of Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. That is an image that was largely, if not entirely, destroyed in the Garden of Eden when sin entered the world. But it is an image that is being restored in all who are children of the Most High God. And it's being restored to these people who are trusting in Jesus as their Saviour. As we finish, I want you to consider... Another passage from Paul's writings, the Apostle Paul, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through to 6. I'll read it out to you, Galatians 4, verses 4 through to 6. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, or born of a woman, made under the law, again born under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. To redeem them that were under the law, that we might... Yeah, I've written that twice. And because ye are sons, God have sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, God sent his Son into the world to redeem people who were under the law. That's everybody. It's not just the Jews of old. We're all born into this world under the law. I've already said, God has written the works of his law in our hearts. 
And every one of us has to give an account to God. And God sent his son into the world to redeem people such as us. He did that by, Jesus did that by fulfilling the law's demands on your behalf, if you're a Christian, and by taking the curse of the law upon himself at the cross when he bare away your sins. That is how Jesus has redeemed you. And with his stripes, you are healed and you are adopted as a son of the living God. You are a son of God or a daughter of God. But did you get that first bit where the Apostle Paul said, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman. The fullness of time, when the fullness of time had come, does not refer to a time when finally, after billions of years, man had finally evolved from what started off as a big bang or whatever. God wasn't sitting there patiently in heaven waiting for that evolution to carry on until finally, at last, we've got man. And then, right, this is the fullness of time. I'll send my son now and he will come into the world as a man. That's not what the fullness of time is all about. The fullness of time refers to God's perfect time for his son to become flesh, to be born of a virgin, to be born under the constraints of the law, under God's law. God manifest in the flesh and born under the constraints of God's law. That's what we have here. Then about 33 years later, the incarnate Son of God, who in the beginning made all things, including man, after the image of God, he redeemed his church with his own precious blood when he was nailed to a cross by wicked men. And he was lifted up to die in accordance with the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen.